You're listening to the History Today podcast. In this episode, Mark Horton discusses the inspiration behind The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Firstly, a quick word about our January issue, which is out this week. It's the first issue of 2014, and also the first to feature a new design for the magazine. In the cover story, Giorgio Riello writes about Cotton's role in the evolution of global economies and international trade, while elsewhere we have articles on Venice in the First World War, the treatment of German prisoners of war, a reassessment of the work of Hugh Trevor Roper, and new monthly columns by Amanda Foreman and Susanna Lipscomb. The January issue is out this week, and it's already available via our digital edition for iPad, Kindle Fire, and Android tablets. New readers can get a free trial subscription by downloading the app from the relevant app store and following the instructions. Now over to our editor, Paul Lay, to introduce this week's episode of the podcast. And the January edition of History Today contains a remarkable article by Mark Horton, Professor of Archaeology at Bristol University, who's written the article along with Lynn Forrest Hill. It refers to the inspiration for J.R.R. Tolkien's ring in The Hobbit, of course, of which a new film is uh, being released currently. And um, it involves an affair that happened in the late 4th century, involving a Roman by the name of Silvianus. Could you tell us that story, please, Mark? Yes, well, it is a really rather bizarre set of coincidences, really. Um, a very famous archaeologist called Walter Wheeler, um, in his early career with his wife, was called in to excavate or re-excavate a temple in Gloucestershire. That's a place called Lydney, dedicated to a local Celtic deity called Noden. And this became a major place of pilgrimage in the 4th century. Uh, Noden is associated with healing cults and so forth. And so people would, would come to the temple um, to, as it were, be cured. But the other side of Celtic gods was that they could also withdraw life and healing powers at the same time. And um, this man, Silvianus, while he was trying to get something healed at the temple, um, put his ring down, probably in the bathhouse, and it was stolen from him. Um, and he believed it was stolen by a sort of local family of robbers called, um, who he named the Sanaticus. And we know about all this because he, he did a lead curse, which cursed Sanaticus for stealing his ring and invoking Nodens to deny him half, um, deny him his health if, if, and if he was successful, um, he would give half the value of the ring to Nodens. Now, subsequently, the ring was actually found, um, not in Gloucestershire, but actually in Hampshire, uh, Silchester, the well-known Roman town there. Um, and the ring was uh, re-inscribed with Sanaticus's name <laughs> um, on the ring um, and um, it was converted to a Christian ring from what was probably a pagan ring. It has a sort of bust of Venus on it. Um, so these local band of robbers were Christians stealing rings from the pagans. So it gives some in- insight into what Christianity and Roman religion was all about in the 4th century. Now, it is an extraordinary story, uh, and we're not absolutely certain whether the ring and the curse tie up. But why it's relevant to Tolkien is that Tolkien was introduced to these excavations by 
um, his friend Collingwood um, and visited the excavations and must have heard about this story at exactly the time that um, he was writing The Hobbit. And Collingwood, of course, was, uh, was a fellow, along with Tolkien, of Pembroke College, wasn't he? That's right. Um, Tolkien was a, was a fellow of Pembroke College, Oxford, um, along with Tolkien. So you can imagine having dinners together and discussing this, this, this extraordinary story. Um, um, but, I mean, Collingwood had two sides to him. On the one hand, he was an archaeologist and a Roman archaeologist um, and involved in um, transcribing and collecting Roman inscriptions. Um, but he was also a philosopher, and that was actually what his day job was, um, and of course wrote his really important book a little short time afterwards called The Idea of History. Mm-hmm. So um, Collingwood and, and, uh, was probably the instigator of introducing Tolkien to Wheeler, and one can kind of imagine the two men sort of motoring over the Cotswolds um, to Lydney, um, and Tolkien was involved in the excavation by being asked by Wheeler to interpret the Celtic deities that were involved on the site, while Collingwood was transcribing the inscriptions. And so how much did this, uh, the discovery of this ring, the um, conversations that were held between Collingwood and Tolkien and their relationship with Wheeler, who of course was later to become the famous TV archaeologist, um, how much did this influence Tolkien's writing but also, how can we tell how it influenced uh, Tolkien's writing? <laughs> well, that's, that's really interesting. I mean, I mean there's, there's two levels of, of this. I think almost a philosophical level, um, but also a, a more practical level. A philosophical level. Um, what is it that the main thrust behind Collingwood's ideas of history um, was in many ways that objects and things could help tell stories, could help understand the past. And uh, he obviously saw that in a professional historical way. Um, but that same idea of objects and things telling stories um, must have been taken up by Tolkien. And you can imagine them discussing this at a philosophical level. Um, and Tolkien was a various draft of, of, of The Hobbit of, of were developing during the 1920s. But what Tolkien wanted was a device in order to create the centrality of the story. And what made the ring the famous book it was, was that device, which was the ring, which of course was then reworked in the um, in the ring trilogy um, subsequently, um, but is there in its as it were, embryonic form in The Hobbit. Um, so it was that it was that need to tell stories, which was the as it were I think the the central idea that he gained from his discussions with Collingwood, and in some ways it's a very modern idea. We now all use materialities and so forth as a way of understanding the past, material culture and so forth in a um, way um, that maybe a previous generation didn't. So what those discussions nineteen twenties were have very modern. Um, resonance today and indeed we have that i mean we've seen the success of neil mcgregor's uh, history of the world in 100 objects for instance this is now uh, pretty much uh, straightforward traditional history now but then it was really groundbreaking stuff absolutely 
absolutely. And and I don't think, I mean, you know, even, you know, 10 years ago, I think um, a lot of historians didn't like objects. They found them rather curious. They were sort of left to art historians or archaeologists to look at. You know, the documents were where it was all at. But I think now people understand that objects have a peculiar power of narrative of their own, which goes back to the Hobbit and those conversations, motoring across the Cotswolds. Yeah, and can we look at the way in which the the ring, this idea of a ring, this idea of an object, is treated differently in The Lord of the Rings uh, from The Hobbit? Well, I think that, I, mean, I think we need to go back a little bit, um, first of all. And so what, what Tolkien was trying to do in creating um, this, as it were, story, it was a, a story of England, it was a story for England. He was a um, professor of Anglo-Saxon, he wanted to create, as it were, a national story about England. Um, but he, he was kind of stuck <laughs> to find that narrative um, because, you know, on the one hand, you had all those, you know, Germanic reworkings of Wagnerian ring cycle and so forth, um, which he, he, he denied had any relationship to his, his story of the ring at all. He wasn't had any inspiration for it at all. He wanted to find something that was English um, and something that had that, as it were, um, insular resonance. And um, the ring, I think, really was that key device and his experience in, in Lydney. And the relationship in some ways between the Romans and the Saxons at Lydney um, was also important. And the way in which the Saxons who subsequently came and lived in that part of Gloucestershire <laughs> saw this early world of, of, of goblins and people living in little tunnels under the ground and so forth um, were really important in terms of how he created his story. So the, the landscape of the Forest of Dean um, was, was as important as the wider, as it were, just the ring itself. And his scholarship, his Anglo-Saxon scholarship, um, displays itself to in his concerns with etymology of names, That's with right. nodens in particular. Absolutely. And and I think he also saw some continuity. While he was working on this Celtic god, Noden, he did strongly see a continuity between some of the Celtic and Germanic gods. Um, and saw essentially one, one notion of sort of an English-British amalgam. Um, again, which which later scholarship rather frowned at, but I think modern scholarship is now seeing um, in much more favourable light that the Germanic element of England, or, um, or probably the Germanic element of pre-Anglo-Saxon England, um, is now beginning to be recognised. So basically, his, his intent, his mission is to create a national mythology. That's right. And do you think he was not influenced by Wagner in any way, or do you think that's disingenuous? When I think asked in later life about the relationship between his ring, you know, and uh, Wagner's ring, he said, "Well, actually, you know, they're just, you know, two rings. <laughs> they're not, and they weren't related at all." And we have this new film of the Hobbit coming out. It's it's out at the moment. I mean, and we've had the enormously successful uh, trilogy of Lord of the Rings on film as well, which have been huge commercial successes. Peter Jackson's films. What explains? The enduring appeal of the books and the films. Well, 
And I just think it's an extraordinary combination of the fact that the, the fact that they were rooted in sound scholarship, um, and in many ways Tolkien was 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 shrouded by fellow, fellow academics rather frowned on the whole business, um, and thought that it was all really rather silly, and it um, lessened his own scholarly contributions. I think probably modern Anglo-Saxonists think he really didn't make a really major scholarly contribution. Um, and when he was appointed Professor of Anglo-Saxon, there was a huge row at the time because Dorothy Whitelock um, should have had the job, or many people believe, you know, a sound scholar who'd done a serious edition of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Um, but he was a scholar and combined that rich imagination with with that scholarship. And very, very few authors before or since have been able to do that. And so the fantasy, I mean, and it is very much a fantasy, is underpinned by rigorous scholarship, which I suppose makes it all the more believable, despite it being a fantasy. Yes, absolutely. The, the, it, it has that, that air of believability about it, uh, which, um, you know, is, is, is what is enduring. And, and I suppose what we've been able to uncover in our story um, is that actually it really was rooted in real archaeology. There's a real place, there's real things that, that, that inspired it. Well, thank you, Mark. It is a fascinating story. You're absolutely right. And uh, it can be read, the ring that inspired Tolkien, in uh, the January edition of History Today. Thank you, Mark. Thank you very much. Thank you, Paul.